As we begin, I want to start by asking you to think about the coming of Christ. I wonder how much time in your Christian walk you give to contemplating that reality, that Jesus is coming again. I wonder if you're like me and you've been sort of, in a way, scared off by the sensational um, prophecy chart-wielding pastors who seem to be fixated on that coming in unhealthy ways and have all sorts of uh, overly specific predictions about this and that event and, and essentially try to, to pin down the hour. You know, and you, you kind of are scared off by that stuff. And so maybe, in a way, you have overcorrected to not thinking much about the return of Christ, about the good news of his appearing. Throughout Christian history, going back to the days of the New Testament, the promise of Christ's return was a matter of great hope. The earliest Christians had a a keen sense that Jesus was coming back, and they looked forward to Jesus coming. And even for them, the coming of Christ was also a struggle. As much as they looked forward to his coming, they wondered why his coming was delayed. And it seems that this, this sense was that they had was that Christ was going to come very soon and in the first generation after his ascension to heaven. They expected him any day. And every day that he didn't come, seemed to lead, some of them at least, to question their faith. And it may be that this is what's going on in the book of Hebrews, that these early Christians to whom the author of Hebrews was writing were were going through suffering, and Christ wasn't coming back, and they began to think, well, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe we've believed something that's not true. Maybe it's time to to leave aside the things about Christ that we've confessed and and return to the old ways, the the life we practiced under the old covenant. We know from this chapter especially that the the audience of Hebrews faced extraordinary trials. We see that in the the last part of our passage when the author reminds them how they endured hard struggle with sufferings, Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It says that they had compassion on those in prison, and it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. All of those kinds of persecutions are really hard for us to imagine. Plundering of property. You know? Imagine having your house vandalized because of your faith. Imagine brothers among us here or sisters among us being put in prison because of our confession. None of us have experienced anything like that, although Christians around the world have experienced it and are experiencing it even now. And in the midst of all this trouble, they're finding that Christ has not returned. The trouble goes on. We're seeing another generation of Christians come and Christ has not returned. They're wrestling with this, and this may be what leads to their temptation to turn back to the old ways. Now, even though none of us are facing those extreme temptations, those extreme trials of persecution and plundering, we all know something of what it means to to go through deep and lasting times of discouragement. We have our own trials, even if they're not as intense and persecution-focused. And we don't have any assurance from God that these trials are going to come to a nice and tidy end. We, we often like to promise ourselves that one day we'll get past this, we'll be able to look back and, and be able to learn some lesson. But we're not really promised that that's the case, right? Some of the trials you're going through today, you may go through for the rest of your life in some form or fashion. We know this is the case often with, with chronic illnesses or, or relationships that are fractured. And when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to wonder. Maybe this this faith that I've been pursuing isn't working. Maybe it's time to give up and try something else. We've wondered, when will Christ deliver me from this experience? 
If those thoughts have crossed your mind, this passage this morning is for you. The author's message here is for people who are suffering, who are looking for deliverance, who are wondering where it is, and who need endurance in their suffering. So here's the author's message for struggling and perhaps impatient Christians. God is faithful. God is a righteous judge. And God promises a better possession. Those are the three points we'll walk through this morning. God is faithful. God is a righteous judge. And God promises a better possession. So to look at this first point, let's read verses 19 through 25. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in these verses. um, And then we'll move through the other points as well. So first, God is faithful. Read with me beginning Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We get the kind of the heading for this first point in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is perfectly faithful to keep his promises to us. As we experience suffering, and even if that suffering grows more intense or drags on, and we start to wear out, we need to remember God's faithfulness. He is faithful. Now that those two words together, God's faithfulness, maybe sounds a little stoic or detached. It may sound like I'm saying, God's faithful. He's going to be there when you need him. That's kind of like the way we think of our life insurance policies, right? It's sort of in the background. We hope it's filed away where everyone can find it when they need it. But that's not an adequate way of thinking of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness isn't a passive attribute. It's It's not a stoic quality in God. God's faithfulness here in this passage is revealed in all that Christ has done. God proves his faithfulness in the work of Christ. So in the context of our passage, we see God's faithfulness on display as we look at the author recount all of Christ's work in verses 19 through 21. Those verses are like a recap of all of the amazing truths about Jesus that the author has been preaching to us through the whole letter. And so we see there that in God's faithfulness to us, he has not left us in our sinful state. Rather, he's come near to us in Jesus, our great high priest. We see that God in his faithfulness has opened up a way for sinners to enter into God's presence. And so sinners can come near to God Because of God's own sacrifice of himself in the person of Jesus and his death for us on the cross. So we know our faithful God as we look at Jesus and his work for us. Who is both the sacrifice for our sins and our exalted high priest. We see in verse 20 one of the most arresting images of the whole book of Hebrews. As the author reminds us again of the tabernacle's architecture. Remember, there was a curtain, as John told us earlier, separating the holy place from the most holy place. This is how it was in the original tabernacle and then in the, in the temple that was built in Jerusalem. This curtain was embroidered with cherubim. Remember, we talked about that in our study of Leviticus. It was kind of a picture of the Garden of Eden where the, the cherubim blocked the way to God's presence. And only the high priest could go past that curtain, and he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
He could only go as he brought the sacrificial blood to sprinkle on the altar. The author says, though, in, in that verse, in verse 20, that we can enter God's holy place by the new and living way that he, being Jesus, opened up for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. It's a bizarre image, but it's a powerful image. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, offered up his flesh on the cross so that we can come to God. The curtain through which we enter the holy place is the the flesh of Jesus sacrificed for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. His blood atoned for our sin. His blood sprinkles our hearts clean. From our evil conscience. That is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is our forgiveness secured through the sacrifice of Jesus. God's faithfulness is embodied in the radical love of Christ. The promises of God are secured in Christ's work. So these promises aren't contingent on anything to happen in the future. They're not up in the air. They're secured by what Christ has done. And remember, when we think about Christ in the book of Hebrews, we're not talking about a man who was crucified merely. We're talking about the man who was crucified, and then he rose again from the dead. He laid down his life and he took it up again. But even that's not the end of the story. He ascended into heaven. And he sat down at God's right hand. So he's presented to us as the great priest over the house of God. The the high priest seated on his eternal throne. He is our faithful God. He has made purification for sins. And we, we saw this last week, right? There's no more work to be done. He's seated. See how our, our view of God's faithfulness is grounded in Christ's victorious enthronement. Our God is not weak. He's not up in heaven fretting about our trials. He has secured our fellowship with Him, with Himself, through His own sacrifice. So we can enter. We can draw near through the curtain. That is Christ's flesh. And we draw near, not sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats, but with Christ's own blood. Our hearts are purified because of God's faithfulness. Our God's faithfulness is the faithfulness of our great, sympathetic high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. So when we're in the middle of hard stretches of life and we confess, God, you are faithful, We're confessing, God, you have loved me in Christ. You have not abandoned me. I am not alone fighting off the world, the flesh, and the devil in my own power. God has faithfully sought us in our sinfulness. And he secured our salvation by what Christ has done. Our high priest lives and he faithfully intercedes for us. He faithfully reigns over our lives even now. So all the suffering that we endure is not outside the sight of God. He knows what we're going through. He's working through it. And one day soon, God will faithfully bring us home to him. Now, we who are sitting here in this room, we don't know if our home going to God will be by meeting the risen Christ in the air as he comes down from heaven. Or if it will be as we pass through the waters of death. But soon, God will come for us. And we will meet him. And he will faithfully complete the good work that he started in us. The author of Hebrews wants us to dwell on that ending point. That we will be with the Lord. That the the fellowship that we enjoy now, secured for us in Christ's blood, it will come to a, a consummation one day. We will be with our God. 
God is faithful. Now, the author of Hebrews here doesn't just kind of proclaim God's faithfulness as a bold fact and then move on and kind of leave us to work out the implications of God's faithfulness for ourselves. He he tells us what our response should be. And that's what we see in verses 22 through 25 with these three let us clauses. And as we look at these responses, we see that these responses to God's faithfulness are both individual and corporate. And what I mean is they're both for each Christian has a role to play in responding to God's faithfulness for themselves, to draw near, to hold fast. But these are also things that we do together as a body. So whenever we say corporate, that's what we're talking about. Our, our response together as a church, as a group of Christians. We see that, that kind of corporate element first and that these are plurals. They're let us do this. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. But we also see this, this corporate dimension in verse 25 where we're encouraged not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we're meant to do something together, to stir each other up, to encourage each other. I think that last group of clauses in verse 25 there is meant to kind of shade and inform the whole group of, of let us clauses. Because God has demonstrated his faithfulness to us in Christ, we each draw near to God and we encourage each other to draw near. We each hold fast to the confession of our hope and we encourage one another to hold fast to the confession of our hope. We imitate our faithful God by faithfully seeking to encourage each other, to stir each other up to love and good works. The author of Hebrews is wonderfully practical here. It's like he's sort of leading us by the hand to apply all of the rich theology he's been preaching to us. He wants us to know how to suffer well, how to endure in the midst of suffering. So let's just briefly go through these responses. First, we're to draw near to God as those cleansed by Christ. We see this in verse 22. He calls us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And just before we jump into this, remember each one of these is preceded by the the sense of because of these other truths that are there, because we have a confidence to enter the holy place, because Christ is our great high priest, that's why we draw near. So these are all based on the faithfulness of God as we've proclaimed it. So when we're in the middle of our suffering and when our suffering seems like it will never end, when we're feeling weak and beaten down, the call of the author of Hebrews here is draw near to God with confidence. This means that your suffering or your persecution is not a sign that God is angry with you. You know, we, we talk with some of our children about how to read the room sometimes, how to understand the social situations they're in and kind of pick up the signals, basically know when to stop talking. But God's not sending us signals here with our persecution or suffering. He's not sending us kind of a, a nonverbal cue to, to shut up and stay away. No, he's welcoming us in. He's calling us to draw near In our suffering, we need fellowship with God through the gospel. Notice the gospel blessings that are presented here. We're to draw near with the full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, God is not condemning you if you sometimes struggle with assurance. He's saying you have every reason to be fully assured Because in Christ you are cleansed. Again, go back to the last passage. Christ has sat down. The work is finished. You can be fully assured because of what Christ has done. We are cleansed all the way down to our evil consciences. We've been declared righteous by faith in Christ. 
And so now sin is not the final word on our lives. Our sins have been nailed to the cross, as Paul proclaims. So we can come to God boldly. We can enter his throne of grace with confidence. So suffering Christians endure their suffering by resting in the gospel. We keep going to God. We keep fellowshipping with God. And we're fellowshipping over the fact that we have been forgiven and our consciences have been cleansed. We've been washed. We repent and believe in the gospel. And we rejoice that we can draw near to God. In our, in our weakness, we have access to God. And remember, there is this corporate dimension to this. There is something that has to do with our, our lives together as a church. We do this together. We should remind each other of the gospel truths. We should say to one another, you are justified in Christ. You are washed with his blood. Or something, something like that should be part of the conversation we have with each other when we're just talking together, when we're fellowshipping to proclaim gospel truths to each other. I think this reference to our bodies being washed with pure waters is getting at some of this. It seems to be referring to the the practice of baptism, something that happens to our bodies, right? Baptism is a sign of what Christ has accomplished. So we can even say to each other, do you remember your baptism? Remember when you were washed with pure water? That's a picture of what Jesus did to your heart, right? That's one of the reasons we think baptism should be practiced not kind of with you and your buddy in a river somewhere, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an ordinance for the church because the church gathers around that new believer and says, brother or sister, we, we affirm your confession of faith. We affirm your life. And we are baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because you've been washed, your consciousness is made clean by the blood of Christ. And so we affirm you. And so now walk as one cleansed by Christ. Enjoy fellowship with God. Remember that you are cleansed. God is not angry with you. Be fully assured of God's love for you. Because of what Jesus has done. Draw near because God is faithful. The second response to God's faithfulness is in verse verse 23. We read, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think another way to put this second let us clause is to say that when we're suffering, we need doctrine. This doctrine I'm talking about isn't, isn't any kind of dry, stuffy intellectualism. It's the doctrine of our hope, the confession of our hope. It's these truths about Christ that the author of Hebrews has rehearsed with us again and again. It's the doctrine of God's promises to us in Christ. We need to remember that hope for sinners is only found in the truth of Christ. Christ crucified, risen, and exalted. The truths of the gospel are what we need in this life of suffering. That's what we hold on to. And so suffering is not a reason to abandon your confession. It's a call to hold all the more tightly to your hope, to Christ. The doctrine of Christ also points our eyes to the future. We look forward to the day when we will rest from our labors. We look forward to the hope of complete freedom from sin's presence. We look forward to the day of the the end of suffering. We see the same thing in the Lord's Supper. I think we even maybe see uh, some some sort of implied references to the Supper. We have references to the the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant a little later. We have references to the the flesh of Christ broken for us. But in the Lord's Supper, in the, the very last words of the institution, after we've taken the bread and the cup, we say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper should draw our eyes forward. Our confession of the truth of the gospel calls us to look forward to that day when Jesus comes. 
And so all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near, we hold fast. We hold fast to our confession. We wait for Christ's coming by holding fast to the truth of Christ. Again, this isn't something we do alone. As we've already done this morning in our worship services, we we try to practice this by saying out loud a corporate confession of faith. We join our voices together and we proclaim the truths about Jesus, the truths that we hold to as the day draws near. It's our hope. Christ is our hope. And so we point each other to God's promises. Now, that's not the only place we should do that, but it's a starting point. I hope it encourages you. But you could also ask, who can I encourage to hold fast to Christ? Even as you leave today, as, you're, as we have the benediction and we're, we're sent on our way with God's blessing, who can, you, who can you speak a word of gospel encouragement to? Another good thing to do is reflect on who are those Christians God has used to encourage you. Thank God for them. Maybe you just call them up and tell them, man, it really encouraged me when you, when you spoke those life-giving gospel words to me when I was, when I was down. It's given, me, it's given me hope to keep going and hold on to my confession. The final response to God's faithfulness in Christ is to stir one another up to love and good works. Because God has been faithful to us, we seek to stir each other up to love and good works. Since Jesus has washed us with his blood and he's opened up the way to God, we encourage each other. The author gets very practical by saying that we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. I say this is practical because it's really hard to encourage each other if you're never together with them. I mean, didn't we experience some of this during our our break-in meetings during COVID when we had those six weeks in April and in 2020, March and April, where we couldn't meet together? And I think in some sense we've experienced that by having just one worship service and not being able to meet for Sunday school and our our weekly, uh, our monthly prayer meetings that we used to have. It's been harder to encourage each other because we're we're not together as much. I think this thing about meeting together also seems a little old-fashioned. Our culture is, you know, very... Uh, very much emphasizes being true to yourself and it's kind of suspicious of, of institutions and habits like going to church. We often hear even people say, you know, the church is not a, a meeting or an event, it's a people. And I understand the good intention behind that, but there is something that about a church that must be a meeting. The church is an assembly, it's a gathering. The author of Hebrews says that regularly gathering with God's people is a, it's a vital part of how we endure in the faith. It's a vital way that we respond to God's faithfulness. We meet together to encourage each other and be encouraged. We encourage each other by meeting together. And when we're suffering, it may feel like meeting together is the last thing we want to do. We may feel like we have no capacity for other people and to to provide care for other people. We might even be told by some that the thing you need to do when you're suffering is to kind of to erect good boundaries and protect yourself. There may be some wisdom in some of that. But the author of Hebrews knows that it's, it's going to be a temptation in the midst of suffering to neglect meeting with others. We can easily let our suffering convince us to to start dropping out of church a little bit. And this becomes a habit, the habit of some who neglect to meet with God's people. So let me encourage you, even if you feel like you're at a point where you have little left to give others, simple faithfulness in the midst of suffering is a huge encouragement to other Christians. The ministry of showing up is a powerful ministry. The ministry of just taking the next step of faithfulness speaks loudly about God's love. Not only this, but the Lord will encourage you as you encourage others. As you consider how to stir others up to love and good works, you will be stirred up to love and good works. 
There are few things more encouraging than a suffering saint testifying to God's faithfulness. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of of someone asking you a question that kind of forces you to, to speak of God's faithfulness to you, and all of a sudden you leave encouraged. It's like, I, was, I thought I was ministering to them, but I really just ministered to myself by speaking of the Lord's faithfulness. We see from this first section that God's faithfulness should change our lives. It should change everything about us. Because of God's faithfulness to us in Christ, we're no longer dead in our sin. We're no longer hopeless. We're no longer alone in an evil world. Do you know God to be faithful through the love of Christ? Are you drawing near to God through Christ? Are you holding fast to Christ as your hope? Are you encouraging others? In verses 19 through 25, this first section, we get a a picture of the Christian life. And of the Christian church. Christians are those people who draw near to God through the gospel and who help others draw near to Christ. The church is the fellowship of people who've been purified by Christ's blood, their bodies washed with the pure water of baptism, and who regularly gather to stir each other up to love and good works. We are those who know God's faithfulness through Jesus Christ. Do you know God's faithfulness? Do you know the work of Christ? God is faithful. Those questions about do you know the work of Jesus become all the more important when we move into the next section. God is a righteous judge. So let's read verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm sure as we read that together, a lot of questions pop into your mind. But I want to make sure we don't miss the main point of this section, which is this. Those who reject Christ will receive God's judgment. That's the bottom line. Those who reject Christ will receive God's judgment. Notice that the author describes those who deserve judgment from God, that they are those who have received the truth. That is, they have received the truth about Christ. They know that he is the Son of God. They know that he shed his blood for sinners. They've heard the Spirit's testimony about him, that, Jesus, that through Jesus, God remembers sins no more. I think we could probably say that they've been baptized. So based on what we've seen in the previous section, they've been washed by the pure water. So the author wants us to, to know these folks have, they have, they have a high degree of knowledge and they appear to be Christians. But he, at the same time, he wants us to be clear that there is no salvation outside of Christ. And this is true for these original readers of Hebrews. If they reject Christ and return to the old covenant, there's no salvation for them. It's true for the 21st century person. If you turn your back on Christ and seek your own version of spirituality, there's no salvation for you. There's no salvation Outside of Christ. And the author author emphasizes this point by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 in verse 30. There's two kind of mini quotations. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. Both of these come from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And that chapter is interesting because it comes toward the end of Deuteronomy as, as the Lord's kind of preaching this sermon to his people on their, the cusp of uh, their entry into the promised land. 
And it's a prophetic warning about what would happen to God's old covenant people if they forsook him to worship idols. So that's kind of the the mood of Deuteronomy 32. It's the prophetic warning about what happens to God's people if they forsake him. I want to walk through a few verses from this chapter. So you can turn there if you want or you can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This chapter begins by God calling Israel, or, or Israel uh, with Moses calling God Israel's rock. And this rock image continues throughout the chapter. So listen to verses 4 and 5 from Deuteronomy 32. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, speaking of Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, so we get the picture here. God's righteousness and sinlessness is proclaimed and his people are indicted for dealing corruptly with him. Down in verses 16 and 17, we see how Israel has dealt corruptly with their God. It says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently from your fathers, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So Israel went after other gods. They were unfaithful to the rock who created them. And because of their idolatry, God pronounces judgment on them. So listen to verses 21 and 22. God says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. Devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. So this all is the context in which the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the Lord will judge his people. Now, What's remarkable about this is that the author of Hebrews is now saying these words weren't just for those ancient Israelites back in the wilderness who became idolaters. He's saying there's a a greater and truer application of this warning. And it's for those who forsake Christ. It's even for those who would forsake Christ to go back to to the covenant of Moses, to the old covenant. Pastor John made this point a few weeks ago. After the revelation of God's faithfulness in Christ, to go back to the old covenant becomes a form of idolatry. So anyone who forsakes Christ, the author of Hebrews is saying, deserves an even greater punishment than those who set aside the law of Moses. We see that the author says that they have nothing left but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This warning, though, is not just to heap condemnation on on people who are weak. It's, It's an urgent plea. Don't forsake Christ. It's proclaiming God is a righteous judge. And the way to make yourself an enemy of God is to reject His faithful provision of salvation. The author is saying, if you're suffering, if you're wondering why God's allowed all these sufferings to come in your life and to keep coming, you can't find the answer to that by abandoning Christ. He's saying there is no hope in that path. There is only the fearful expectation of judgment. Without the atoning work of Christ, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But the big question hangs out there for us. Have I forsaken Christ? We all know ourselves to be sinners. We might wonder, using the words of verse 26, have I sinned deliberately? Should I be worried that there is no longer a 
uh, no longer remains for me a sacrifice for sins. Well, we need to understand again, the sin he has in mind is connected to having received the knowledge of truth. The knowledge of the truth. Again, the context is telling us here, he's talking about those who, who know the truth of Christ, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin. They, they know all of what Hebrews has proclaimed. They know that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. So he's, he's talking to those people who know this truth. Saying, if you know that truth, and you've deliberately set it aside, you have turned away from the only source of salvation. To put it in the terms of the previous section, to reject Christ is to reject the faithful provision of God. And so instead of entering into God's presence by the new and living way, he says you trampled the Son of God underfoot. Instead of being cleansed by Christ's blood and sanctified, you've profaned the holy blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant that sanctifies you. Instead of listening to the Spirit's testimony that God remembers your sin no more, you've outraged the Spirit of grace by forsaking God's provision of salvation in Christ. If you turn your back on Christ... God's faithful provision, you make yourself an enemy of God. So we might wonder, well, is there, this, is there kind of a distinct way of, of apostatizing, of turning away from Jesus that then permanently cuts you off from any chance at repentance? And I'm not convinced that's what the author is, is getting at. When the author says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, I think he's, he's playing on the idea that there was a first and a second covenant. And he's gone through great lengths to show us that the first covenant was, was ultimately useless for, for really dealing with our sin. But Christ's covenant really does take away our sin. But in this passage, he's saying there is no subsequent covenant to look forward to. Christ's covenant will never be replaced. And if you try to set it aside, there's no other sacrifice that you can turn to. Christ's covenant is the ultimate provision for sinners. And there is no other sacrifice for sin than what Christ has done. Because remember, Christ has sat down. There are no longer any sacrifices for sin being made. So I don't think that we should all be wondering, have I committed some unpardonable act of apostasy. But we should be asking, having understood the gospel, am I forsaking the provision of Christ? Have I stopped fighting my sin? Have I stopped drawing near to God by faith in Christ? Does my attitude towards sin show kind of a hard-heartedness? Have you made peace with sin? Are you living contentedly in unrepentance? Are you seeking to escape the consequences for sin or seeking to escape reminders of sin? Or are you confessing your sin and seeking forgiveness in Christ? Am I holding fast to the confession of my hope in Christ? Or am I confessing some false gospel? An entrenched pattern of unrepentance is a sign that we may be on the road to apostasy. We may be on the road to making God our enemy. And if you're in that place, the solution is not to, to give up And the solution is not to look for some other savior. The solution is to repent and draw near to God through Christ. Right? The gospel was sufficient to forgive Peter, who denied Christ three times. It was sufficient to forgive Paul, who held the coats while Stephen was martyred. It's sufficient to forgive your sins. We need to see that God is not a deaf and dumb idol like the gods of the nations. 
Deuteronomy says, their rock is not as our rock. Our God is the living God. He is the righteous judge. He will save all those who are in Christ. But all those outside of Christ will face his wrath. The author of Hebrews wants us to see suffering is no excuse for forsaking Christ. That path will only lead to a greater eternal suffering. God is a righteous judge. Thankfully, the author doesn't leave us on that note of warning. He concludes this chapter with a reminder that God promises a better possession. As we're closing, let's read verses 32 through 39. The author says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come without delay, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author begins with this a re- reminder to the Hebrews. He says, look back on your life. Look back with those former days when you first came to faith. And look at how you suffered for Christ. Remember how you encouraged your brothers and sisters who were suffering. Remember how you valued so much the, the promises of Christ. And you valued them more than your possessions. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Whoever wrote this letter was a a master pastor. This is a helpful thing for us all to do. Remember your life, your Christian life. Remember how you have forsaken sin to follow Jesus. Remember those times where you've trusted Christ. And you've seen Jesus be faithful to you. Remember back to the the first joy you felt at forgiveness of sins. How great it seemed to you. This is a great way to encourage yourself. Encourage yourself by telling of God's grace to you, to another brother or sister. Tell someone today why you found the gospel to be good news in your life. That'd be a great thing to do as we leave or to do around the lunch table. Tell someone why Jesus has been precious to you. The author here speaks of a a possession and a reward that awaits us. Given all that he said here in Hebrews, I think we must understand the possession and the reward to be God himself. The better possession that belongs to us is life with God. It's the life that we enjoy now as you draw near to God's holy place. And it's the life that is ours in the new heaven and the new earth. That treasure we have in heaven where where moth and rust cannot destroy. It will one day be ours. One day it's ours by faith right now and it will be ours by sight when Christ returns. So the day is drawing near when we will see our high priest face to face. And so we need to endure. And that's the punchline, I think, of the entire, the entire section here in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What's the will of God? That you draw near to God in Christ. That you hold fast to your confession. That you stir each other up to love and good works. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away Christ. His blood has cleansed you. Through Jesus' priestly service, you can know the living God 
who remembers your sins no more. I think the argument here is very much like the Apostle Paul's argument. Since you are alive in Christ, have nothing to do with the dead works of sin. He's telling us, Christ's people endure. And you are Christ's people. So keep going. You are not of those who shrink back because you belong to the one who didn't shrink back but gave himself for sinners. We are those who live by faith. We persevere in faith and so we're not destroyed. We preserve our lives. We endure. And we endure knowing that Christ is coming. Brothers and sisters, soon we will be with Christ. Now, I'm not prophesying about Christ's return or when it's going to happen. But we all know that our lives pass in the blink of an eye. Every parent knows this. Yesterday, you were bringing your child home from the hospital. Today, they're graduating, right? Or yesterday, you graduated from college and started your career, and now you find yourself on the back half of it, right? A friend of ours used to say that, you know, baseball players have potential until they're 30, right? And then they're kind of washed up if they're not succeeding by then. I often think about that, you know, way past 30, right? I'm a member of this uh, Facebook group for young pastors. Like, well, am I still a young pastor? Life passes quickly, doesn't it? The Lord is coming and he will not delay Now is not the time to give up. Keep seeking that better possession. Keep dying to yourself. Keep remembering and reminding each other, this world is not our home. One of the reasons we sing the songs we do is because they remind us of this. I think every week there's a song with a vision of heaven. So this week we we just sang a couple of minutes ago, I will glory in my Redeemer that when He calls me, it will be paradise, His face forever to behold. That is where we are headed. And we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who persevere and save our souls. Oh Lord, make it so. Let's pray. Father, we are tempted to charge you with slowness. We're tempted to complain about the length and the severity of our trials. We ask you to give us the eyes of the the servant who wrote this letter to know that Christ is coming and he is not slow. Soon we will see you. So help us to endure. Help us to persevere in drawing near to you, in confessing our sins and fellowshipping with you through the gospel of Jesus. His blood poured out for our sins. Help us to endure in encouraging each other. Help us to endure together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.